all of these people in the you know lower 25% of our socioeconomic demographics they're being robbed of those moments and those chances for connection because they're having to eat nothing and that's you know what makes the work that you know fair share and ourselves do um, so crucial it's because we focus on that quality and we focus on that dignity i am easily triggered by those covid memories that pop up on my phone reminding me of some pretty dark days but one memory that i'm actually pretty happy to uh yeah come to the front of mind is my association with alex decker alex started his uh, social enterprise charity alex makes meals uh, right at the start of the covid pandemic and yeah we were in touch in those weird early days alex it's great to catch up with you and see what's been happening over the past few years welcome to dirty linen thank you so much danny it's always a pleasure it's so great to have a chance to chat with you uh give us the backstory like how did you end up you're alex now you do Alex Makes Meals. How did all that come about? Well, I mean, to start with, it was originally meant to be just Alex Making Meals. It was never this, you know, I never intended to have an organisation bearing my name. Um, if you, if the listeners would cast their mind back to the horrific years of 2020, um, they'd remember it wasn't a great time for anyone. And the people it really wasn't a great time for, particularly in those early days, were you know, our healthcare workers, they were absolutely, if you excuse the language, they were in the shit. Um, they were working these, you know, 12 to 15 to 16 hour days, seven days a week, because we didn't know what this disease was and we didn't know how to deal with it at the time. And so they were totally isolated. My sister happened to be one of them. And I did what any single person would do for their family. I decided, I offered my sister, hey, look, you're going through a tough time right now. I'm a uni student stuck at home. I'm not really doing anything with my time. I can make you a meal, drop it at your doorstep, not a problem. And while I was making that first meal, which happened to be just this, you know, a lasagna with a recipe stolen from Recipe 10 Eats, um, I realized, hey, look, it's not that hard to cook this much food. There's a lot more people than my sister out there needing food and not everyone has the kind of support network my sister does. And so I just put out a post on Facebook saying, if anyone needs food, no matter what the reason, I don't really care. I'm not going to ask why you need help. I'll drop it at your door. No questions asked. You don't have to chip in. It's just something I'll be doing for the next couple of weeks. I didn't understand how Facebook privacy settings worked at the time. So I thought it would just be like five or 10 of my friends who were struggling um, reaching out. Instead, it got shared to those wonderful little um, Facebook support groups that started at the start of COVID in community networks. And within the evening, we had about 500 people asking for help, which, whew, that was, you know, that was more than little old me in my dorm room kitchen could manage. But at that exact same time, we had people like yourself, Danny, who reached out saying, hey, look, I have some resources, I have some networks, I have some ways I can help out. Let me know what you need and let's see what we can get done. And so one week later, we had 827 meals made um, in a kitchen with volunteer chefs, volunteer um, drivers, volunteer everything. And from that point on, we just kind of went, oh, this, you know, it's hard, but it's not hard enough that we shouldn't do it anymore. Just because we, like, we did it once and it, we, you know, we broke our backs doing it for the first week, but the reward was so obvious. We went, this is what we have to do now. This is, you know, we have an opportunity to help so, so many people. And, you know, we, we couldn't not. So 
we kept going. We're doing about three and a half thousand meals a week now. And we have every week since COVID started. Yeah, it's such an amazing story, Alex. And so your sister's a doctor and you had that initial focus on healthcare workers, but, you know, quickly expanded to anybody in need. Who are you feeding now? And is it all still lasagna or have you branched out of it? Yeah, so, I mean, no, it's it's not just lasagna. Um, turns out lasagna, if you're going to meal prep for a lot of people, potentially the worst choice of a dish to make. You have like, All those layers. Yeah, so many layers, so many weight steps. Like you've got to soak the pasta sheets. You've got to make the bechamel. You've got to, it's nightmarish in like the complexity of the dish. Great for making a family and showing how much you love your family, but really bad when you start making a couple hundred at a time, right? Um, now we are feeding what, what you'd call the traditionally vulnerable groups. Um, so you have the classics like homelessness, um, people fleeing domestic violence, people in horrific situations that you'd see on some, you know, really heart-wrenching poster in the street. But we also have a lot of new groups that really haven't seen the kind of food insecurity as they have at the moment, you know. So we have, you know, international students is a big one that's starting to pop up. People who don't have necessarily the money to fly back home because they lost their job from COVID, but don't have the government support networks to be able to, you know, get any support other than us. And so you have them, you have a lot of international imports who are really struggling at the moment, but you also have families who have never had to see the aid side um, really have to come and seek help from groups like ourselves for the first time because of rents going up, rental crisis, bills going up, the whole gamut, right? And so we're serving anyone who needs it is the long and short of it. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of our ethos. We don't really pick and choose who we serve. If you need food, we trust that you need food. Yeah, it's not something that people are scamming, that's for sure. Um, Alex, you started this when you were 19. You were a uni student, as you said. I mean, uh, this is a pretty big uh, life redirection. What were you studying? Did you finish your course? You know, and, and how does it sit with you that this is now who you are and what you do? Yeah, it was, well, look, there was, there was a bit of, identi bit of an identity crisis, I guess. Um, I was studying potentially the least related degree to what I do right now, um, nuclear chemistry um, back then. And so, you know, you could, you could argue that some of the systems approaches and the combining of stuff to make something is similar. But in reality, it was the furthest possible work from what I'm doing now. Um, I dropped out probably three weeks in. Um, to Alex Makes Meals and went, this is actually everything I've ever wanted in a job, everything I've ever wanted in work. The purpose is so immediate. The reward is so immediate for what we do. And, you know, far and above working in some chemical lab doing testing for the rest of my life. Today, I have a chance where, like, I can go into the kitchen, I can cook, God knows how, like, I can cook a thousand meals in a day and see those meals get delivered to people on the streets that evening. Right, so it's it's a really immediate turnaround. You never question whether or not you're doing something good and you never question whether or not what you're doing is, you know, is helping people at the end of the day because you can see it. And yeah, it's, it's been a massive identity shift for me. I've got to, I've had to stop looking at myself as, hey, I'm a chemist, you know, I'm training to be a chemist, I'm gonna do great things, chemical engineer, yada, yada. Now, my long-term trajectory is, focus purely around how do I help the most people with the time I have on this planet, you know? And that's a very different outlook on life. That's so interesting. I mean, before COVID came and turned everything upside down, 
did you have any sort of underlying doubts about your path? Sort of. I had the doubts that everyone in the, you know, late teens to early to mid 20s have, right? In is this the right thing to do, yada, yada. Oh, why do, you know, nuclear chemistry when I could do structural engineering kind of stuff. But it was never, I never questioned whether or not I wanted to go down that academic path. For me, it was always a given, you know. Um, and then for the first time I ever had the opportunity to not go down that academic path, I found out I love it, you know. I love not having to, like, engage in, in huge, pointless theoreticals when instead I can help people in front of me. You know, so there wasn't, there wasn't any doubts per se about, you know, what was actually going to happen. Um, and I had no doubts that the career path I'd chosen was the right one. But then, you know, COVID happened and like for so many, it really gave me a chance to reassess my situation like I never could have otherwise. And in those early days, you know, it scaled so quickly. What were some of the challenges and I guess the successes um, that you had in those early days? Yeah, so the first week was probably, it was the first week was less of a challenge than the weeks after that, right? So we went from making no meals a week to making 800 meals a week. And that's, that's a, in terms of scale, that's the largest jump we'll ever see because that, you know, meals from nowhere. Um, but then the first week that happened, um, after that first week, the news got in touch with us. Um, you actually helped us refer us to a couple of journalists that you thought would find it interesting. And we made front page of the age and a feature piece on the project. And all of a sudden this tiny little GoFundMe that up to then had raised about $1,500 um, in the space of 24 hours raised about $80,000. And if you look at it from a you know resource allocation point of view, no sane person would give a 19 year old $80,000 to spend, right? The temptation to buy a new car was huge. Um, but you know, it's, so it was learning go, it was all of a sudden the shift from, this is a fun thing I'm doing with my friends and this is, you know, a way to spend COVID. You know, I just help out, everyone's helping out, yada, yada. It was shifting from, this is a fun hobby I've picked up to, oh God damn, now I have an organization. And $80,000 is like, it's both a lot of money and not much money at all. Um, in that to an individual that is a year's salary, but to an organization that has to, you know, pump out 3000 meals a week, it's not much, it doesn't take you far. But it was still enough that all of a sudden the responsibilities changed from how do I make sure my friends are having the most fun and how do I make sure we're having the most fun helping people to how do I maximize these resources to make the biggest impact? And how do I make sure this organization is here to stay? Because food relief only works if it's a long-term thing. If you give someone a meal on the street tonight, that's wonderful and that person will thank you tonight, but it's not gonna do a huge amount to change their actual situation long-term. But if you give them, you know, three meals a week every week for the next 50 weeks, that's a year of them not having to afford it, figure out how to buy their own meals. That's a year of them not having to prep their own meals, a year of them having that financial, you know, flexibility and a year of them having that time that they otherwise wouldn't in which they were trying to find and source and cook the food. And so we had this situation where, you know, we very quickly realized that if we wanted to make a difference, we had to stick around for the long term. And that was a really tough shift to make. Going from short term thinking to long term is near impossible. And I had no experience in it. So it was about, you know, I also had to learn a lot during that time about long term strategy. 
And so, Alex, what's the structure of Alex Makes Meals now? Is it like, you, you know, do you have a board um, what, and what's the ongoing funding model? How do you actually pay yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm currently getting paid oh, probably about half minimum wage um, because I'm a masochist. Um, but um, we are, we're full charity. Like every single little bit of due diligence work has been done. And let me tell you, that, that in itself is a whole fucking, that's a degree worth of work doing. And I've very, been very grateful to get very experienced people on board to help me with that side of things. We have a full board that, you know, can fire me if they so choose. Um, but yeah, we, we are a full established organization now and we've been very lucky to get there. We're funded through public donations primarily. Um, so we have, you know, the occasional fundraising dinner. Um, you're actually hosting one coming up, but by the time this podcast comes out, tickets would have closed. So don't worry about it. Um, and we are of course very grateful to people like yourself who help us with those things. Just people can just send good vibes and if they've got tickets, they're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you've got tickets, man. The food there is well and above the ticket price, so good, well done on getting tickets, but send good vibes anyway. Um, and so, like, we have those one-off events, but our main source is just people essentially waking up one morning and going, hey, I could probably help with food relief. How do I help these people? How do I help the people in my community? Googling food relief near me, and we come up, um, which is, you know, it's an interesting funding model. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the smartest set of business decisions um, to get there. And so we're setting up long-term structures of social enterprise, which can, you know, both do good work in the community, but while doing good work in the community, can raise money for the food relief that is central to our business. And so that's stuff like social enterprise cafes, food trucks, catering events, that kind of stuff. We're trying to really expand our reach there, which is something that's only been possible since COVID's ended, so that we can continue doing the food relief we can keep doing. and. The question becomes, how do we make sure that we're making the best difference in 10 years instead of how do we make sure that we exist in two? And Alex, what have you learned about chefs and cooking and, you know, I guess cooking at scale from your work? Well, there's, look, there's, there's two questions there in that. Firstly, chefs, as anyone listening to the, you know, a podcast on the Food Network would know, chefs are an interesting breed of people. Um, so passionate, so talented, and so in love with what they do, but also so chef, right? There's a, (laughs) and that's, unless you've worked with chefs before, there's no real way of describing it. Um, They're people who exist to work on their feet in a kitchen. And that is, you know, that's why, why people work in hospitality. And thanks to this experience, I've found that I'm, you know, more closely aligned to that kind of person than I was to being an academic. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very particular kind of world to navigate where it is all of these incredibly passionate people who really want to, like, maximize what they can do in the next two weeks. And they have this two-week outlook on life and a two-week, when are my shifts? What am I doing in the shift? How do I make those shifts both the best food I can make, but also how do I organize my life around the hospitality world, which is famously inconsistent and hard to work in? Um, but then when you get to cooking in scale, that happens to be the only kind of person who can cook at scale and who can take that pressure of cooking at that kind of st- scale because sending out three and a half thousand meals a week, that's, there's no way a home cook can really quickly get to that kind of level. And there's no way that I personally could get to that kind of level in the time that we did. And so chefs, while they are so, you know, chef, they're also incredibly generous people I find, um, and incredibly 
like if they think something's good and if they think something's worth doing, they will throw their whole soul into it. And that's kind of how we started. That's how we scaled so quickly because chefs came on board and threw their whole soul into it very, very quickly. Um, and without that kind of energy, without that kind of drive and the ability to work, you know, 14 hour days, that never would have happened to us. In terms of scaling and the ecosystem writ large of how do we cook that many meals, there's just so many strange pieces of ecosystem that you'd never be able to know if you weren't you know, working in the field anyway. Stuff like, why do we all order with Food Bomb now? That's a change that's happened in the last five years. And how do you navigate that kind of volume? That's all tough stuff, but every chef knows that intuitively. And so without them, couldn't be possible. And what are some of the meals that you love to hand over to the agencies or the people in need? Yeah, so we have this like, we have a huge variety of meals, each different meals for different situations and different kind of groups that we serve. Um, but we try to make sure that every single meal that we send out is a meal that I would have like at the start happily given to my sister because it can be so easy to fall into this trap in food relief um, of at least they're eating something because you know, in, in your head you see hungry people as hungry and they just need calories in their belly. But in reality, the problem's a lot more nuanced than that. And it's a lot harder to deal with um, because sure, people want calories, but for the price of Maggie noodles, you can get calories pretty cheaply. But what people need is a meal they want to eat and a meal that is good for them at the end of the day. So we put a lot of work into making sure that we have, you know, fairly complicated meals. Like we did um, like Wagyu koftas the other day with some, you know, some Wagyu generously doted from sure. Um, and so like, we wanna make sure that all of our meals, no matter who you are in society, you want to eat, so that when we are giving them to those worst off in society, they want to eat them and they wanna share them with their families. And we found that has a very direct effect on the impact that our charity partners can make because by giving meals that you'd happily present to your family, it means all of a sudden they're having mums come in every Wednesday to pick up 10 of our meals. And those mums are just looking for something that they can acceptably feed their kids, right? And they can be happy and proud to give to their family without, you know, the embarrassment of, oh, look, some, someone made some soup and I think there's vegetables in it. They, like, they can present it as dinner and be happy with that. And that means that all of a sudden these agencies are getting an inroad and a way of connecting to these mums or dads in terrible situations that they otherwise wouldn't because they're coming in every Wednesday evening to collect our meals. And the fact that our meals can do that and connect to that whole group of people that otherwise wouldn't be able to reach if we just focus on the calories is what's so important there. Yeah, that dignity and respect is is so crucial to creating those connections as well as the, the practical assistance. I do a lot of work with Fair Share, as you know, Alex, and um, mm -hmm. you just you just feel so proud to be um, creating meals that are so tasty. Uh, yeah, any you'd just be happy to um, feed them to anybody. They're just yeah, delicious, nutritious, uh, made with great produce. It's um, yeah, it's definitely uh yeah just the respect that's in that food is is crucial and like if you just think about like all of your best memories or most of your best memories you've had you know probably at a dinner table with your family or your loved ones right and the things that form us as people almost always happen over a dinner table and that's something you can't forget when you're doing food relief like this and if you were giving bad food if you're giving food that is going to make 
just sitting in a di- dinner table kind of of labor of necessity instead of a labor of love or as you know moment to enjoy all of these people in the you know lower 25% of our socioeconomic demographics they're being robbed of those moments and those chances for connection because they're having to eat nothing and that's you know what makes the work that you know fair share and ourselves do um so crucial it's because we focus on that quality and we focus on that dignity and to really nail that down like both of our organizations we acknowledge that we're not the best people to serve the meals at the end of the day like i'm not a social worker no one at fair share is really like a direct two-person social worker and no one ever expects us or intends for us to be i do not know how to best manage a case no one in my team knows how to best manage someone's process of escaping addiction or how to case manage anyone but what we do know is how to make good food at huge scales right scales that no social worker could ever do and before we came along to all of the charities we're serving before we came along what actually ends up happening is these social workers who aren't chefs have to figure out how to make their own food relief because whatever they've been doing previously hasn't necessarily worked and people need food and they know that that draws people in so they make you know they come up with a food relief solution and that's almost always some poor social worker without the training cooking it in a pot at home and that's just a waste of their time a waste of their resources and ends up delivering a much inferior product to what we can do with far greater efficiency so we focus on getting that food piece right we focus on being that that piece of infrastructure for the wider charity system so that social workers and so that charities can focus on actually making that day-to-day difference alex it's it's a it's a conundrum when you're working in food relief i reckon because underlying it is this idea that it's necessary but it shouldn't really be necessary you know the ideal um, trajectory for organizations like fair share or alex makes meals is that they just weren't needed anymore that um you know people were uh able to yeah everyone was supported enough in society that they didn't need food relief how do you sort of puzzle that one out yeah it's look the the standard thing in the charity space is pretty much every charity exists so that the government doesn't have to take responsibility for something at the end of the day, right? Like a lot, we, something like Fair Share is, is in large part in their capital expenditure projects funded by government grants, but almost all of their day-to-day running costs, the stuff that actually matters at the end of the day is funded by private equity or private donations. Um, and that's the same for us, right? Um, and we all acknowledge that we only exist to lessen an evil that shouldn't ever have to be questioned or ever have to be there, right? Food security shouldn't be a problem, particularly in the richest country on the planet. Um, And so our goal is, you know, long-term that no one needs to rely on our food relief side of things. But we've also found an immense and completely accidental value in the good that happens within the kitchen, right? So even if tomorrow no one actually needed the food relief at the end of the day, there's so much good going on within our kitchen itself in that we have these people who for whatever reason are free on a Wednesday and a Tuesday and a Monday and you know free during the week and a lot of the time need that kind of social exposure and need that social connection and because we are at we're not at a scale like fair share which does you know at times up to 70,000 meals in a week right we are 
smaller in a sense, um, or in every sense, we're smaller. But because of that, we have a kitchen of people who regularly come in of like 12 to 13 people and they make friendships in there and they become a community in itself. And we found that all of the kitchens we run create those communities and create those really like valuable support networks. And so you'll have a group in which there's business owners right next to apprentices who have just been laid off for economic reasons or X, Y, Z. And just having them in the same room working on something together creates such a strong sense of community resilience and a strong sense of robustness within the community itself because all of a sudden they're in a position to help each other and they're in a position where lessons can be learned intergenerationally within the kitchen itself because you know they're standing next to each other while they're working, they'll talk to each other. But also everyone in that per- kitchen has a unique sense of purpose, which, you know, can happen in so very few things and cooking is one of them. If you ever, all of the chefs you ever have on, right, we'll talk about the camaraderie they have in the kitchen and like the sense of solidarity they have with all of their team and how they're all working to do. What is hospitality is that like, it's a very painful process and it's a lot of work, but doing it with their team is what a lot of chefs get out of it. And the reason why chefs so often underpay themselves and don't pay themselves what they're worth it's because that teamwork is there and that sense of group identity. And we find that that happens in the kitchen as well. So it's not just a sense of we're doing food relief because someone else isn't. At the moment, the, the community in our kitchen is so strong itself that if we weren't doing food relief, I feel like those people would still show up every day. <laughs> there really is no end to the connections that can be created around food. Uh, although I've got to just say, we we do hope that all chefs are being paid properly throughout the industry, even though there are compensatory benefits. Um, yeah, being paid properly is, is crucial. And Alex, you've got to work out a way that you can be paid properly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as, you know, a lot of chefs are in you know, the the benefits justify in my own head. It's like, oh, look, I'm not getting paid properly, but, you know, because I'm doing this, it's fine. And long-term, you know, if I ever want to start a family and kids one day, that won't work. But at the end of the day, I'm still in that beautiful student age bracket where I can take the self-immolation. But that being said, if anyone else was doing this to me, it would be a total travesty. And <laughs> the- Okay, I- I'm going to keep asking you about this over the months and years and just check in, check in with you. You don't have to show me pay slips, but come on. <laughs> I Look, will I ever pay myself properly? Probably not, but that's just me. It's the, the underpayment in the hospitality industry writ large becomes because bosses aren't paying their workers properly, right? And I'm in the case where I'm the boss not paying myself properly. But God damn it if you don't pay anyone else properly. My chefs, let me tell you, They're paid properly. They're paid as social workers. (laughs) Um, Alex, so great to catch up with you. Cannot wait to do this dinner in a few days. Um, And yeah, uh, love to support the work that you do. Um, Yeah, thank thank you for making a crazy COVID leap and uh, changing direction uh, to do Alex Makes Meals. Always an absolute pleasure, Danny. See you soon. See ya. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. 
If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.